Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today's guest is Howard Cusick, VP for Research and Publications at the Manhattan Institute and author of Who Killed Civil Society, The Rise of Big Government and the Decline of Bourgeois Norms, which is the subject of today's podcast. Howard, welcome to EdChoice Chats. Thanks for having me, Jason. Our pleasure. So, Spoil the book for us. What does it mean that civil society is dead, and who killed it? Well, civil society is not dead. It's a bit of hyperbole to make a point. Civil society, however, has been distorted. American civil society has, the thesis of the book, has been distorted by it falling into an embrace, especially a financial embrace, with government, which has pushed it, the thesis of the book, away from a force shaping values, formative values, in favor of programs for clients to reform their bad ways. And so the difference between the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and federally funded programs to help drunk drivers or teen pregnancy, government approaches problems. Civil society historically in America approached formative values and taught the promotion of them. Now, you talk at great length in your book about these differences between the formative and reformative approaches to improve society, but you start with, and we'll get into that in a minute, but you start talking about your father's rough childhood and how he nevertheless grew up to, as you put it, thrive as a productive, responsible adult. So what was the secret to his success? And tell us a little bit about some of the obstacles that he faced as a child. My father was uh, orphaned in the depth of the Depression. His mother died when he was five. His father died when he was 10. And he was then looked after. Uh, his well-being was the province, not of the government, which at that point was not involved in foster care but with something called the Juvenile Aid Society, indeed a civil society organization in Philadelphia, which not only placed him in foster care and paid his foster family, but sent a volunteer, a volunteer, I'm just emphasizing that, to visit him in the foster home and to discuss with him a long set of values that the Juvenile Aid Society thought it was important to uh, expose him to. So... Even though he himself was the subject of charity, he was told, when you become an adult, don't forget, you also must be charitable. Just think about the implicit assumptions there. First of all, he's going to do well. He's going to be able to give money to charity. And, of course, that that's the right thing to do. And then that long list of values that the volunteer, quote-unquote, social worker who came in a big black Cadillac to a row house in Philadelphia, brought to him included self-respect, self-governance. That's, we think about that in terms of uh, government, but self-governance, meaning control your impulse. So these were very subtle kinds of values that uh, have fallen out of our discussion, even though, arguably, many young people are in great need of them. So, you, again, you talk at length about the role and importance of formative efforts, like you just described, as opposed to reformative efforts where there's a problem that already exists and you're then trying to fix it. 
Now, schools clearly play a very large, maybe even central role in the formative efforts that you describe, but you argue that the government does not do formative efforts very well, and that the formative work is best done by civil society. So most schools are run by the government. Why do you see that as uh, so problematic? Well, first of all, it's difficult for government-funded entities to agree on what the right values are. And we've seen tremendous controversy about what the right values are in school. Is the most important value uh, to expose young people to the problems of bullying. That might be the most prominent value statement that our schools are making today, in contrast to self-discipline, rift, and other ideas. So it becomes difficult to rely. Schools certainly can promote healthy values. When I was in the fifth grade, we opened savings accounts at the Cleveland Society for Savings. That, there was a lesson in that. There's no doubt about it. But it's hard to rely on government to promote what I would call our timeless bourgeois values, self-abnegation, deferred gratification, God knows marriage. It's hard to rely on government to promote these things because it's subject to, we've seen recently, fads, fashions, and controversy. And what makes the government so particularly susceptible to these fads, fashions, and controversies that civil society institutions like private schools are less susceptible to? Well, government is, in a way, properly so, a creature of politics. And so as constituencies, both electoral and intellectual, if you will, come forward, they can begin to hold sway. And once they do, they hold sway over whole school systems and groups of school systems in states. Whereas private schools, and I think charter schools, as less directed in their efforts by government, and certainly not solely supported by government, retain that discretion that civil society permits. Civil society, I like to say, is everything that China doesn't allow. And that includes the discretion to form a charter school or a private school and to say, we are going to have this approach. And maybe if that approach doesn't work, the trustees will rethink it. But that is their right in American civil society. And so we have the possibility of a range of approaches being taken that way. Now, speaking of charter schools, you have an entire chapter in your book that's dedicated to the Harlem Children's Zone, which was founded by Jeffrey Canada. And this is your example of how civil society can play a vital formative role through schooling and related services. So who is Canada and what was he trying to achieve with the Harlem Children's Zone? Jeff Canada is a really important figure who was prominent a decade ago, cover of the New York Times magazine, became a favorite of President Obama and has somewhat faded unjustifiably, I think, because he's built something quite enduring. The Harlem Children's Zone is what he calls a cradle-to-college group of programs and services in a 140-block area of central Harlem. And what fascinates me about what he's done, it's not just the charter school. He's got a couple of charter schools. He also has tutoring programs in traditional public schools, after school. He also has a college, what he calls a baby college, for new parents to help them with child rearing. So he really is thinking 
about the whole continuum of age groups. But what really fascinated me about him is under the umbrella of the Harlem Children's Zone, he, as an African-American, is absolutely unapologetic and uses the phrase bourgeois norms. The charter school and the philanthropy that supported him even before he got the charter gave him the license and the latitude to promote ways of thinking that had really fallen out of fashion. He talks about speaking proper English, and he doesn't apologize for that. He talks about, we need a peer group of aspiration, going to college, going on to higher education, and that that's actually a better way to prevent teen pregnancy than programs that are meant to prevent teen pregnancy. So he says some things that are very socially conservative, very much in line with the history of formative civil society organizations in the United States, and he's on the scene right now. And it's because we still have philanthropy. A man named Stanley Druckenmiller has been incredibly generous with hundreds of millions of dollars supporting Jeffrey Canada and a hedge fund financier here in New York. And without that partnership, forged because they were both once students at Bowdoin College, an, a private school, there would be no Harlem Children's Zone. So American philanthropy and the latitude it provides to a civil society organization, that's what happened there. And it just so happens, I suppose he could have been promoting anything, but he is embracing the renewal, renewal, such a good word, of bourgeois norms and doesn't apologize. So is that what you would say is the primary difference I mean, because between what uh, the Children's Zone is attempting to accomplish and what the government does? Because you could point to a whole bunch of different government programs that are also from cradle to career, maybe even cradle to grave, trying to provide a bunch of services, whether it's Head Start uh, you know, for very young children, all the way through Pell Grants to go to college. Aren't they doing the same thing or are they doing something very differently? Well, I'll distinguish between Pell Grants and the kind of thing I'm talking about. In my book, I'm not particularly critical of the social welfare state. Conservatives have raised questions about the disincentives that public assistance programs of various kinds make for. I don't see that as going away anytime soon. I'm critical of what I'm calling the social service state. And, you know, for instance, the Administration for Children and Families, which most people have never heard of, It's the beating heart of the Department of Health and Human Services, and it distributes, get this, every year, $53 billion, mostly through contracts with what some people call the independent sector. Maybe it used to be independent, but it isn't anymore. And so that's what I'm taking issue with, with the social service state. And to your question about aren't those programs similar, typically they're reactive And so teen pregnancy programs are for teen mothers and how to help them cope. Substance abuse programs are for those who have fallen victim to substance abuse. And so the difference is, I suppose you can call it preventive, and I'm calling it formative. And even preventive would say, don't get pregnant. But Jeff Canada and others are not saying that. They're saying, do your homework. Speak proper English aspire, and kind of in a Zen way, where you hit the target without aiming for it, that's a way to, in his view and mine, 
prevent bad outcomes. So some will argue that, uh, you know, sure, uh, civil society organizations like the Harlem Children's Zone are, are great, but they're not enough. Only government can bring what they do to scale so that nobody slips through the cracks. You know, and in fact, the Children's Zone, uh, you know, the charter school aspect of it is government funded. Why can't government just scale this up, take what Canada has done, and let's just, you know, the government can fund it at scale and run it at scale? This is a key point, and uh, I think it's a key fallacy. There's a social scientist at Johns Hopkins, Lester Salomon, and he talked about what he calls voluntary failure as the nonprofit equivalent of market failure. Market failure, of course, is uh, we can't provide for the national defense unless government provides for it because each of us doesn't have an incentive to mount our national defense. Voluntary failure for Salomon is, well, there can't possibly be enough drug clinics run by volunteers. Therefore, the government has to fund community mental health centers and drug clinics. Uh, the fallacy, in my opinion, is, is a serious one, and it's this. Only norms, only norms really bring us to scale. If the IRS had to depend on law enforcement to get Americans to pay their taxes, they'd always be behind. But most Americans voluntarily pay their taxes because it's the norm and we accept it. If norms are the way to go to scale, well then social programs, as you mount them and get them to greater and greater extent, first of all, they risk quality decay. And Head Start's a great example. The original Head Start program, which was a small nonprofit pilot program in Israel anti-Michigan, by all accounts, did rather well. But when we mounted thousands of them across the country without the local champion and the dedication of the original founders, the results have been not even mediocre. They've been non the results fade away by the third grade. And so we took something to scale in the classic matter, and it, the diminution of quality is what occurred. Norms can spread. Not everybody has to be in Jeff Canada's Harlem Children Program who lives in that area to be affected by it. Norms can spread. And I believe that the only way we repair and renew our social fabric is by renewing our norms. And I think that happens community by community by community. We have to stop looking to the next big federal program. That's been the trap that we've fallen into. My favorite historical example, and I have a whole chapter on this in the book, is on the settlement house movement. You know, about 120 years ago, we had even more immigrants as a percentage of the population than we have today. And there were about 400, that 413 to be exact, locally developed and overseen, privately supported people settlement houses in which volunteers taught English to the new immigrants and prepared them for citizenship, as well as teaching them a whole range of skills. My favorite example is Hull House in Chicago, the original settlement house, gave Benny Goodman his first clarinet. People who don't know who Benny Goodman is today, he was probably the greatest jazz clarinetist and the king of swing in the big band era. And so these volunteer organizations, they weren't linked by a federal network. 
They weren't grantees to a Department of Health and Human Services. They were organizations that learned about what they do from each other. They had national conferences. They copied each other, and they spread. And with them, the norms that they promoted spread. They promoted healthy eating. They promoted preparation for marriage and how to run a safe and healthy household. So these were profound things that helped the social fabric one community at a time. And just returning to Jeffrey Canada briefly, the Obama administration tried to replicate what Jeff Canada did in Ireland across the country in 30-some cities they called promised neighborhoods. And eventually, Jeff Canada himself stepped away from this. He said, this is, is not working. You need, you need 30 or 50 or 100 Jeff Canadas. You don't need 30 or 50 or 100 grant programs. And how did... What were the results of the Promised Neighborhoods? I mean, they put uh, more than $100 million in federal grants into these Promised Neighborhoods around the country. This was based on Jeffrey Canada's idea. This was this was meant to take Harlem Children's Zone and bring it to scale nationally. So what happened? The evaluations are quite amazing. The evaluations focused on process triumph. The main evaluation found that different social service organizations communicated better with each other. And so the idea was to link existing social service organizations in some kind of a continuum that would ape what Canada had done. As soon as you say it, you realize, well, this is not it. He, he, he didn't have to link separate organizations. He had an organization. He led it, and he had a vision for it. And so the whole idea was distorted. And I don't think anybody can tell you that anything much came of it. Now, in the Mathematica research, which you mentioned on the Promised Neighborhoods, they, you know, it found some positive effects, some negative effects, but I think overall was pretty tepid in, uh, in terms of its assessment. And you don't hear a lot of talk anymore about the Promised Neighborhoods like you used to. So you talk a lot about this this idea of middle class or bourgeois values, but some people, when they hear those words, they worry that there's some sort of a, a racial component. And yet here you have Jeffrey Canna, who grew up in the South Bronx in a low-income black neighborhood, embracing this. How did he come to embrace these values? Well, first of all, me the history of civil society and its promotion of bourgeois, middle-class values, whatever you want to call them, has been an inclusive process. In effect, old American elites, and I refer to Charles Lorraine Brace of the Children's Aid Society, Jane Addams of, of Hull House, Mary Richmond of the Charity Organization Society, who's the founder of Modern Social Work, they were cluing in the new poor, into the secrets of their own success. They were saying, join us with these values. They served us well, they'll serve you well. And that's what makes America tick. So the idea that they were looking down on people and dismissing their potential, it was just the opposite. That there was an exclusivity. No, there was an inclusive. And by the way, there were African-American settlement houses, famous one in Atlanta. Eugenia Hope, Hope Burns, an 
African-American Victorian, according to her biographer. And in the depths of Jim Crow, she was still urging people to adopt these bourgeois norms because self-reliant, self-sufficient black communities could function based on those. And she thought people would be better off despite the terrible legal obstacles to, to success. And so the idea that there's some kind of a patronization, no, I see it as, as just the opposite. As, as to how did Canada get into this? He tells a great story. You know, he had, he had an amazing, amazing childhood. He has a great and very little appreciated uh, biography uh, that thick fist and knife about the violence with which he uh, was raised in, in the South Bronx. And then his, his mother, really heroic person, sent him to live with her parents in a lower middle class suburb in Long Island. His life changed dramatically. And just at that time, when some of the elite colleges were saying we need to look to promising African Americans and a black fraternal organization, civil society, the Prince Paul Masons, they're all over the country, black fraternal organizations, gave him a scholarship to go to Bowdoin College. And as he tells the story, he got up to Bowdoin, which is a very leafy place in uh, Brunswick, Maine, and said, but there's never any problems. Why is that? And that led into this idea of norm. And it also led into his major donor. So it was a very happy set of circumstances. But his insight, his insight that the norms are what made the place great and that norms could make Central Harlem a thriving, safe place, too, that's what makes it special. And you mentioned in the book as well that he saw the flip side when he moved to be a counselor in, I believe it was southern Boston, he saw poor, white, Irish, and Italian kids from South Boston and, and Charlestown having similar problems to what he witnessed growing up in the South Bronx. And so he recognized that uh, these norms or their absence have certain effects regardless of the race or ethnicity of the society that has or doesn't have them. Yeah, it's an important point. In fact, if a response to your earlier question about race, what Canada saw when he went to Boston Charlestown was a white underclass, and it, it blew his mind. Social fabric can unravel in these places, even though there are white people here. They were living in housing projects. They were committing crimes, and they had the same short-term expectations and honor codes that he was familiar with from the streets of the South Bronx. So in a way, that's a response to the idea that bourgeois norms are racial. No, bourgeois norms are supra-racial. They can include everyone. And those who subscribe to them will be better off. So what would you recommend you know, for those who want to see a return to such norms and who, or think that they're important for civil society? We have a system right now where somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of students are attending a school that's actually run by the government. So how do we move from that kind of a system to a system where it's civil society that's taking the primary role? in the formative aspects of our child's development? Well, I don't think that we should rely on schools to be the values progenitors in society. We need to talk about, let's incorporate character education, let's incorporate anti-bullying. There's F 
effort after effort to layer on additional responsibilities under the school, but just have them teach their subject well so that students learn uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And I think that civil society organizations that complement schooling uh, can be our best vehicle. I, I didn't mention this one in the book, but one of my favorites that has won a, an award program we here, have here at the Manhattan Institute called the Civil Society Awards, which I've been involved for about 20 years, are the New Jersey Orators. The New Jersey Orators are a group of middle-class African-American professionals who were disappointed to see the way young men and women they knew were interviewing on job sites. So we have to teach them to present themselves better. So they began an after-school program, after-school, completely private, volunteer-driven, we have about 400 volunteers, and they have what used to be called declamation. You get up and you speak. You might give the Gettysburg Address. You might give something from Shakespeare. Uh, you might give something from Alice Walker. But you get up there and you speak on your own in front of large crowds, and you get rated, and they have competition, and your kids really prosper. And so I think complementary programs supported by philanthropy at the local level are important. It's certainly true that charters and private schools have always had the discretion to include, and, and religious schools, to include values in their approach. And for those parents who want them, that choice is important. And to the extent that we have tax credit scholarships to help them and other things like that, that's important. I do think, though, I suppose my heart is in these uh, additional programs, these additional organizations that provide an exposure, not necessarily a, you know, a kind of a didactic catechism, these are the things you should do, but to engage in activities that implicitly, implicitly encourage self-improvement. You, know, you mentioned the tax credit scholarship programs. One of the interesting things, when I started researching them in for your Listeners' sake, these are the programs where, uh, similar to vouchers, uh, families get a scholarship to go to a private school of choice, but the funding mechanism is different. Instead of being publicly funded, private donors, either individuals or corporations, will make a contribution to a scholarship organization, and they will get a tax credit, and then the scholarship organization helps usually low- and middle-income families. A lot of criticism is that, well, you've got this unnecessary third party, this middleman that could just be cut out. And, you know, so they're they're keeping a portion of the donations in order to run the organization, and then they're giving the rest out in the form of scholarships. Why couldn't we just, you know, through taxes, just send the money to the families directly? But I found that these scholarship organizations are very often doing a whole bunch of other things that the government with a voucher program isn't doing. You know, first of all, going into neighborhoods and churches and community institutions like, uh, you know, the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club where they can find low-income families and letting them know that these programs exist in the first place, which uh, the government often does not do. But also, you know, for example, the Children's Scholarship Fund in Philadelphia was also running adult literacy classes at night because a lot of their families, they were encouraging them to read to their children. But often, these are low-income families where the, you know, and it's often a single mom, wasn't able to read herself. 
So they were doing that. They were also running financial literacy programs to help these families with their budgeting so that they were better able to consistently provide their children with food and shelter and and so on and so forth. This wasn't a, a government program. This wasn't something that anybody told these scholarship organizations they should go do. These were just voluntary organizations that recognized a need and decided to step in and fill a role. I'm not sure that the government can simply say, oh, I like what they're doing and then bring it to scale without it turning into, you know, sort of the promise neighborhoods situation where it just doesn't doesn't scale up. Well, I'm, I'm dubious about the whole concept of scale because it's usually dedicated people at the local level who are touching the front line that are able to make these kind of things work. And as soon as it becomes bureaucratized, I mean, anybody who's applied for a federal grant knows that deadening how you have to report. And, you know, local boards and local donors, tax credit providers, they can be flexible. They, they have perhaps a longer time horizon. And they're non-bureaucratic. So the bureaucracy, I think, would strangle the kind of flexibility and farsightedness that you're describing. To a certain extent, the tax credit program is a workaround so that if the parents want to use the scholarship for a a religious school, they can go ahead and do that. And it it would be legally complicated for the government to provide support to them. Well, as the side effect of creating these benefits, collateral benefits that you're talking about, well, that's a good thing. Howard, before we close, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? Well, you know, I've just been on a related subject. I think all your listeners know that we're in a big war over charter schools. And the thing that I like about charters is the fact that, despite the fact, or notwithstanding the fact that there's government support, it's not directed. They find their way to fulfill academic objectives, and if they don't, well, maybe maybe it'll close down. But it's not the kind of directive grant that we have distorted civil society. So in a way, they're a step back toward a civil society, especially because so many of them rely on uh, philanthropic support to complement the public support. And, and for those who say, as the column in the Wall Street Journal said the other day, that, well, they're, it's all explained, their success is all explained by self-selection, motivated families that are older, young men and women. And I say, well, let's say that's true. With those students have done just as well in traditional public schools. If you can't say that with any assurance, then you have no position to defend because those kids get only one chance at being educated when they're young. So the discretion and the kind of civil society aspects of charters, I think, are worth rediscovering, are worth appreciating. Amen. My guest today has been Howard Husick, the Vice President for Research and Publications at the Manhattan Institute and author of Who Killed Civil Society, The Rise of Big Government and the Decline of Bourgeois Norms. Howard, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Ideas series, please send them to media at edchoice.org. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on platforms such as SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on social media at EdChoice and visit our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.